This is a Media Lab podcast. Ugh. Dave, is there any reason that you had to push me into the bathtub and then steal my money and run away? It's not like you can go anywhere. We're on this spaceship together. Well, as you know, I, I don't respect you as a human being, and I really need to buy something to eat. Who is going to deliver out here? There's no way that they're going to be able to deliver anything. Pizza, let alone anything else. Spaghetti? Why am I talking about Italian stuff? I don't know. Well, it's 40,000 lira, so that's got to get yeah. me something. I, that's yeah. making what's, bank. What's the conversion into space dollars? In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the machine. My name is Kyle. Should I do a fake Italian accent? No, that's offensive. I'm a Dave. I'm a Dave. Don't keep that in. And I'm the machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine has uh, cloistered us here inside of the space station, trying to figure out the password so that we can actually start our return mission back to Earth. Because apparently an apocalypse has already happened. I should tell you that we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. But today we get to talk about... Knights of Kiberia. Ragazzi, mambo numero 26! Mambo! Dave, I'm really curious to know what your history is with like Fellini and this movie in particular. I do want to just do a, a small pause here and say that as per the instructions of the machine, we are doing special bonus episodes over on our Patreon page so that if you are a, a supporter of a certain level, you can hear us talk about additional films from the year 1999. You will hear a special snippet from the episode that we are talking about dogma so you'll hear us talk about the movie dogma oof, uh, oof. <laughs> over there on patreon and also a huge thank you to our patron green girl yyc so dave what is your history with mr federico fellini uh i just know that he exists that he's considered <laughs> uh great and that uh a bunch of his movies have name recognition, but I actually haven't mm -hmm. watched any of them. They haven't actually been that available uh, pre-streaming. They're, you know, like when I found about eight and a half weeks, you can't just walk into a video store. You can't go to a Sorry, blockbuster. Sorry, stop, stop, stop. It's just eight and a half. Ah, eight and a half weeks is a very different Is that movie, the uh, one with uh, Glenn Close? Who I think knows? Julia Roberts made nine and a half weeks, if I'm oh, not yeah. mistaken, is maybe what is, you're thinking about. Is that about her pregnancy? No, I've yeah, got all my notes wrong. I actually have never seen it, so I do not know. I uh, I have not watched any of them, so I've I've got nothing. So no, so it, when the when the machine asked us to talk about this movie, you had no name recognition whatsoever. No, I don't understand what language it's in. Yeah, I don't speak <laughs> Italian. I mean, no. that's the problem. Ah, that is going to be a problem. I I, I guess. Um, so uh, Fellini for me is <laughs> kind of like you in a way. Is that I knew the name recognition was there. Uh, but he is kind of in this same stratosphere that I had for people like Ingmar Bergman or, oh my gosh, uh, Antonioni, who is like the other big famous Italian director. So like I knew the names, did not see a single one of their films growing up. Even in university, really did not see any of these films. Here a few years ago, I decided maybe I should rectify this. Maybe I should try and watch a Fellini film. And um, unlike what I usually do, where I try and go like chronologically through a director's work, if I have like no past with them, how's that working out for you, by the way? Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah, halfway what? done Kurosawa. What? What? What's the last movie of Kurosawa's? Did you watch Akiru? I, oh, okay. I watched Akiru. How was that? 
I liked Akiru. Yeah, okay. I thought it was maybe overly long, but it was uh, it was Kurosawa. a good story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, regardless, uh, so instead of doing that, I decided to just do like a random thing, and I picked this one called Amarcord, which is one of his later films. I think he made like four other films after that one, something like that. Anyways, one of his later ones, and <laughs> I watched it, and I promptly after watching it was like I don't get it <laughs> i don't understand uh i read re- uh reviews of it i read like background on it what i've come to now realize is that there are certain things that fellini likes to do in almost every one of his movies there's a little bit of shorthand he doesn't really care about realism in his films like at all so a lot of the stuff are like dreamlike and he intentionally does that because he just doesn't care about being like realistic in his portrayal of characters or situations this is what it's like listening to you talk um but apparently amarcard is like the worst one to pick as the first movie because apparently there's a bunch of callbacks to previous films and like characters that might have shown up here and there that that come in again so it's it's kind of like walking into like avengers endgame having seen no other single marvel movie beforehand i mean like i don't know who any of these people are i have Uh, no idea what the context is about what's going on they repeat a lot of stuff they make sure Sure. they make sure but on but on a smaller scale (laughs) this week what i decided to do was like you know what i should probably see a little bit more fellini before watching this movie presuming so, that you knew we were going to watch it well i now. did because at the end of last episode right the, the machine, machine said yeah you know we have to review this movie deep and rich fiction i watched two other fellini films uh the first one that i watched was the white chic this is his i think first film that he directed by himself because he did another one with another director uh for his very first film it was called the white chic Actually, it's really interesting that I did watch that because the character of Kabiria, who shows up in this movie, actually is in that movie, too, <laughs> for like a quick like five minute scene. So this is kind of like a spiritual sequel to that movie. And at the end of The White Sheik, I had the exact same reaction as I did when I watched Amarcord, which is like, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand why this is good, um, although I can't necessarily say it was bad either for either of those films i was just like i just i feel like it's there's some sort of like cultural thing that i'm just not tapping into that i'm just like it's just not on my wavelength and so i'm just sitting there like i don't i don't get like this isn't really funny even though i think it's supposed to be funny right now anyways that was the white cheek the other one i watched was la strada which becomes important because that is the film that wins the very first oscar for foreign film Uh, and it was the one that came out right before this film that we're about to watch and so i watched that has anthony quinn in it has the same actress who appears in this film in it and i really enjoyed the story and it was only slightly more positive from the other two fellini films where i was like i still don't really get it (laughs) i'm going to say this a lot probably this episode like i just don't get it um not the language or anything it's just like what is being attempted what's being shown like i said it's just not my thing you know i often joke about how here's here's how you make kyle dislike a movie which is like have it be a coming of age story set in the 70s or 80s and he's probably gonna love it and it's usually like probably true and for some people that's just not something that they enjoy it's not going to be something that they want to tap into this is like me on the opposite end of that is like if you like it, awesome, great. It's just for some reason, there's just this disconnect while I'm watching these films. I'm just like, I guess, like, I guess <laughs> it's fine. So that has been my history of Fellini and everyone who loves Italian neorealism has now stopped listening to this podcast. <laughs> neorealism. Wow. That's what they, this is uh, described as. Uh, Fellini is the like forebearer of Italian neorealism. I'm just trying to de what that actually means. Let's look at that. Let me look at my... Uh... I'm just thinking of Yi-Yi and whether mm. uh, Taiwanese cinema was also referred to as neorealism because it was meant in principle to shirk the sort of uh, um, blockbuster idea. Right. Yeah. So this is what Italian neorealism is. It is a film movement 
characterized by stories set amongst the poor and working class, usually filmed on location and frequently using non-professional actors. Ah, uh, okay. Which is true because they uh, do cast a bunch of non-actors in roles. Uh, I, I know even in this movie. So do you think we should jump into some nights with Kabiria here and, and see where we, uh, what we come up with uh, on the other side? I see you've rolled out your 16 millimeter projector. So yes. uh, I don't think I've got a choice. That's yeah, right. Let's Light up this cigarette here and strap it up. Uh, we'll push play. Strap um, it on? No, never mind. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let me go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, it'll be us talking about Knights of Kabiria. Hey everyone, just kind of breaking into the episode one more time to let you know about some of the great people who keep this show going. You know, I don't want to ruin the deep and rich fiction that we are building within this show, but some notes as far as next week, because there is going to be a few episodes dropped into your feed, so I want to prepare you for that. Uh, you know, by the end of this episode, you may or may not be hearing about what year we have picked for our second season. And when I say picked, I mean designated by the machine. So that's a little teaser for you to hopefully reach the end of the episode. So how it's going to go, on Monday, there is going to be a trailer dropped for that season. So a short, little, maybe 90-second trailer for the upcoming season. Then on Wednesday, there's going to be this like special bonus episode about context for the year that we are picking. Another little bonus, little treat, little tidbit for you to whet your appetite. The year that we're picking, neither me or Dave may have been alive for. So we needed somebody to come in and maybe give us a little bit of a understanding of what was going on in Hollywood at that time. Uh, initially, I thought this was just going to be like a quick, like 10 minute thing. Uh, and, and then it turned into basically a full episode of the show. So that's going to go up on Wednesday. Then finally, on Friday, it'll be the main review episode that you've come to love, enjoy and look forward to every Friday from Kyle and Dave versus the machine. So three episodes next week. And then after that, we're going to be back to that. Just one episode a week until the end of the season. So don't think we've gone absolutely mad. That does mean then that it's time to tell you that Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week we're brought to you by ATB, and today I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, The Future Of includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to The Future Of in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. And connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. This episode is also brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. Offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no-obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing, and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bill. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Well, Dave, we spent some nights, spent some days. We watched some, uh, some depravity, some levity. Where do you fall in as non-spoilery a way as possible on this uh, film by Mr. Federico Fellini. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel muddled. 
Is that is that an, a good adjective? I I feel like there were moments where I was it was quite engaging. The starlet, uh, whatever you want to call it, she's fantastic, mm-hmm. although uh, very not not very realistic. There's no neo real no. realism. No, she's way uh, up out. She, Julieta Messina is her name. And interesting tie-in to last week's movie when we talked about City Lights. Uh, she is the actress that Charlie Chaplin said he felt the most emotion after watching. That mm-hmm. she was able to tap into the emotions. It was yeah, basically his favorite actress was her. Yeah, I could feel that from a production value. To be honest, with all of the uh, hype, I was actually kind of disappointed. You are a pretty disappointing person. I, and uh, I think there's a, a little uh, precursor that says that it was uh, restored by a specific mm-hmm. process. So maybe yes. the originals were uh, poorly kept. You know, cigarette burns and and you know the Italians are covered in so who knows uh, what happened to the originals. But there are moments where. It feels almost like student filmy, like you lose exposure and everything just gets a little dry almost, which takes me out of the story a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I can see that. I, I don't know if that is, yeah, just the age of the film, which very well could be. I just don't, I'm not as knowledgeable about that. But now of the four Fellini films that I have watched, not a single one of them would I say is like, well shot great in yeah well yeah i'd like great in visuals although i don't think that's what he was concerned with either he wasn't not really looking to capture great visuals but when you think about like some of the classics in in cinema even like um early hitchcock even chaplin to his credit i mean like they're trying for different like visual expressiveness and this feels like i'm just setting up a camera and we're going to capture this yeah yeah i mean if it weren't at least in this movie if it weren't for such a melodramatic ornate and and huge scoped plot for four what is it four or five days it would mm-hmm. it would feel very casual it would honestly feel like he showed up with a little uh with a little uh camera and was just like okay just say this all right fuck off let's go to the next shot uh it has that tone except for uh the lead actress is so good in it and uh yeah it's a sweeping tale I will say that after, presuming we didn't just just watch this, it has been sticking in my brain a little bit because it's such a large tragedy that tries to connect so many social issues. Uh, It did take me however many scenes to key in that, you know, that she's a lady of the night. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand the house because, yeah, we're not Italians from the 1950s, so we don't know what houses are supposed to look like. So, you know, when she comes into this brick block like something out of minecraft or something something out right, of a lego right, right. i was just like is this is she doing well is this is this <laughs> like, good? how do i judge this is <laughs> yeah. this bad or is this like normal yeah, yeah yeah it took me a while to kind of to kind of just get my feet on the ground so to speak outside of that i mean uh yeah i it's like this I, this is how i felt uh yeah, yeah. like uh. so i don't know if it's just a form of like stockholm syndrome uh, I will I will preface this by saying this is like my favorite of the four Fellini films that I have now seen in my life. Okay. So I'm 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 rating it against that more than anything else, maybe not necessarily against the other films we have watched in the time that the machine has been forcing us to to watch things. You know you love it. I think that there how do I phrase this? I was captured by the story pretty much from the beginning and up until a certain plot point that we'll talk about in spoilers, I was like super invested. I'm like, I really want to know how this story progresses. And then it gets into a bit of navel gazing or I don't know. It just seems to meander a bit for like 35 minutes before kind of coming back to the main plot line. And then I kind of loved it up until the ending again. But there's this kind of middle-y section that I'm like, I'm not 100% sure... I get why we're doing this. You know, there is definitely very overt Christian imagery and stuff in this that is that I don't really care about, to be perfectly frank. So there's a, some of the stuff that gets added in that I'm like, it's interesting as far as texture goes, but I did not feel really added to the journey of our main protagonist. And I think you're right. I think she's great at it. Like, she is just really fun to watch. Honestly, in the, the White Sheik, where she shows up for five minutes at the most, it's the best part of that entire movie because at least she brings some life into it. And you're like, oh, OK, so this there's some fun that can be had here. Uh, and she like 
yeah, just basically steals stands the up, show. S- steals the show so much that it's like, oh, I can understand why they decided to make an entire movie out of this character. She's just that good. So I, I think that her magnetism is something that I can, you know, grab a hold of. Because of the time that this story is set and because of her profession, you kind of sort of know that this is probably not going to have the most happy of endings. Spoiler and at the same alert. time, and at the same time, I was kind of surprised <laughs> by the ending itself. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll leave that to the spoilers. But yeah, like you said, there's a, it starts off quite dramatically. You start, uh, as the plot moves on, you feel like you're on this great odyssey. Uh, Like at first, it seems like a single plot line. And then when that story, like there's just a lot of stories that start folding in. But yeah, by the middle, like latter half, I started thinking like, what what is this really about? And then when they (laughs) go to the wrap up, yeah, you could probably cut out 30 minutes of the film, but it's only... It's less than two hours. So. Yeah, it is. It's just under two hours. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's an interesting thing that the scope of it is fascinating. Like we've mm-hmm. watched some really really long movies, and we're apparently potentially could be watching even longer movies. Um, yeah. And this one hits so many different. Like you brought up Christian imagery, but it, it is a commentary uh, about Christianity's uh, Roman Catholicism's role in that society. You know, one of the hardest things for me at the beginning, and this could just be a preface for anyone who actually watches this movie, because it's so poorly shot and it's black and white, I had no idea what decade they were in until mm. maybe a third of the movie. And I just kept thinking to myself, like, is this the 1930s? Is this 1920s? And the, like one of the cars comes up, I'm like, oh, like, is this the 50s? Like, I... Right. Uh, so I, I felt very disoriented for a, a large part until about uh, halfway mm-hmm. through ish. I, I, mean, I, I, yeah. yeah, I think that's what adds into like this dreamlike quality. Like to 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 uh, promote my own personal letterboxed on here. Mm. Uh, one of the things I said about it, what I loved about like that first half, is that it really taps into one of my favorite things that happened in the before times, which is going out like on the town or even mm-hmm. going to a different city. And being like, okay, we're going to go to this place and then we're going to hop over to here. And then you kind of meander your way into like a few different like mini adventures when you're younger. And then when you wake up in the morning, like, did that happen? Did it actually happen? The answer is always no. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to kill people. It's, it's, I want to be very clear. But I mean, uh, you know, you, there's, there's these things that happen that you almost feel like it's not real the next day. But it actually is. And I feel like it tapped into that feeling for me like really, really well. I especially as you brought up what this idea of neorealism is meant in the context of Italian cinema. If that's intentional, it's it's all over the place. It's, it's good for that, for sure. Uh, but mm-hmm. without knowing it going in, uh, it will leave the casual viewer very disoriented, I think. And, and I haven't seen any of uh, Fel- Fellini's other films. Fellini's other films. Um, Fellini's films. <laughs> films. So I can't tell whether they the stories are all as well structured but this thing actually is a movie it's not you know an art house picture it's not just right, yeah uh, abstract imagery right it's not abstract it is very much like a clear beginning middle and end yes yeah. so um you know I, I i wasn't disappointed i watched it but i was expecting more because this is supposed to be top 50 yeah. movies well, of all time i mean whatever. that's the thing yeah. like part of what we're doing here currently in this like mini purgatory that we're in is looking at the top 250 films as described by letterbox of all time this, of all, of all existence time. yeah and this is like top 20 i don't remember exactly what number there. it is but it is yeah. very very high up on the list so yeah. again <laughs> maybe people that are like super into fellini and like were around at the time like this is like um, one of the Fucking most amazing clicking it yeah ghost <laughs> ghost accounts and like this needs to be higher i was mm-hmm. underwhelmed yeah i was yeah well, let's do some background information here then. So, Knights of Kiberia was released on May 10th, 1957 in Cannes. Uh, it is rated 8.1 on IMDb. It is too old to have any rating on Metacritic. But on Rotten Tomatoes, from 38 critics, it's at 97%. And from 9,947 users, it's at 94%. Wow. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can also rent or buy it from iTunes. It is also so old that I have no idea what its budget was, what it opened to, and what it eventually made. It's Italian. <laughs> so, it's in lira, I, so. All, all <laughs> I know is that it was fairly successful at the time. That's all I know from it. Its plot description from IMDb is, 
a waifish prostitute wanders the streets of Rome looking for true love, but finds only heartbreak. I want to be described as waifish. Yeah, waifish. Waifish. A waifish podcaster wanders the streets of Calgary in search of true love, but finds only heartbreak. We need to amend our description on uh, on Apple Podcasts. That's perfect, yeah. Uh, this movie stars Julieta Messina as Maria Cabiria Cesarelli, Francois Perrier as Oscar D'Onofrio, Franca Marzi as Wanda, and Amedio Nazari as Alberto Lazari. Anything you want to say about the other actors in this movie at all? Uh, no, I think they're Italian. Uh, one of them is French. I know that. But yes, the other are, I believe, Italian. Clearly, I didn't research anything about this movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, you will, and it'll be up in time when this, this <laughs> podcast goes live. Yeah, yeah. But. we got to get some of these ducks in a row. So, Quiet. this was directed, of course, by Federico Fellini. It was written by Federico Fellini with a story by Enno Flaino and Tullia Pinelli with collaborating writer Pier Paolo Pasolini and a writing consultant of Brunello Rondi. There's a lot of people involved in this script, and I'll tell you why here in a moment. Why? Let's see some background briefly of Fellini up until 1957. But definitely check out his later stuff, because it's actually kind of tragic the way his life ends. Uh, But he was born on January 20th, 1920. So... Not when this uh, comes out, but happy birthday, Mr. Fellini, tomorrow <laughs> when we're recording this. Uh, his parents... Betty White's right behind you. He is, um, if he was still alive. Uh, his parents settled in Rimini, which is, if you look at the map of Italy, is on the upper back leg of Italy. Now, of course, this is Mussolini's Italy when uh, he is getting into his teenage years. So he needed to, of course, be part of certain fascist youth groups and organizations. Uh, So there's that in his background. But he was always creative, apparently liking to write and perform puppet shows. Because that's what you could do in 1930s Italy, was write puppet shows. If I'm prepping to commit a genocide, I want more marionettes and uh, light play. Everybody knows that Pinocchio was a fascist. Now, eventually, he gets a job in radio, writing fiction programs to be performed, and this is where he met his wife, who, if you don't know already, is the actress who stars in this movie. Julieta, Julieta, oh my god, Julieta Messina is his wife, and remained his wife until both of their deaths. Wow, that's how you do it in the old country, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, She was a singer, comedian, voice actor. Um, and then, they, of course, they started dating uh, in radio. He kept taking jobs and assignments so it would allow him to skip the draft so that he wouldn't be sent to war. So he got sent kind of into other hotspots in the world to like write, to write radio programs. And that's how he stayed out of the draft. But after World War II and the Allied liberation, he got into writing screenplays. And his first film was co-directed with Alberto Latuada. It was called Variety Lights. Uh, It came out in 1950, but wasn't reviewed all that favorably. However, he would take that knowledge and uh, would soon make a name for himself directing such things as The White Sheik and La Strada. Uh, La Strada would, of course, win the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film. And as we said, first one ever to do so. In fact, he would do it back to back uh, because he would get it for Kabiria as well. So he got the first two Oscars (laughs) for uh, Best Foreign Language Film. Now, Knights of Kabir came about because Fellini was inspired by his wife's performance in The White Sheik, where the same character, a prostitute named Kabiria, has this small part. Now, however, as you might suspect, you already mentioned, Dave, how Catholic Italy is. I don't know why. It's like the center of Catholicism would be in, is in Italy or something like that, the way they oh, wait. go on and on about Catholics all the do, time. Do you, think, do you think when they say Roman Catholic, they're talking... About Ro- no, they cannot. No. Sorry, they're yeah. talking about Rome, Georgia. Everybody knows it. There's a lot of Catholics in Italy, um, and they didn't really want to finance a film that featured a prostitute in the lead role. Can we just talk about the irony of Christianity and how <laughs> literally in the Bible they talk about prostitutes and Jesus yeah. saving them? And mm-hmm. uh, okay, move on. Yeah, but 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 Jesus was Republican. So uh, who? 
Did you know this, by the way, who the producer was on this movie when you watched it? No. Oh, oh. De, uh, De Laurentiis. Yeah, Dino Conan. De Laurentiis. Yeah. Exactly. So he stepped up to the plate. He had, was in his like first uh, few years of being a producer. He had done uh, 26 other films by the time this film came out. The man doesn't sleep. He, does, he doesn't because he would go on to finance a bunch of Fellini's films and other Italian directors and then coming over into Hollywood. Uh, but like he started off mostly with the Italian neorealist films. Uh, by the end of his career, Dino De Laurentiis, he had produced over 500 movies and went up until 2007. His last pro- producing credit was in 2007. I think he passed away at the age of like 99 or something like that. Like he, he got up there, uh, including, I should mention your favorite film, Dave, Dune. David yeah, Lynch's Dune that's right. is a Dino De Laurentiis uh, I just keep production. thinking of Conan. I don't know why. It's so important in my brain. That and um, uh, Scarface. Scarface, I believe, is a D- Dino De Laurentiis production He's everywhere. too. I bet if we do a little parse that we actually yeah. love Dino you films. Should, you should actually check out his entire career because he did pretty good for a guy who started off by selling his father's spaghetti. That is literally what his first job was. I guess... <laughs> You gotta start somewhere. You two are a couple of wet noodles. Anyways, back to Kabiria. Fellini writes the movie, but gets help from this guy named uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini, who, all I can see, and it says this in a few different articles, he knew the criminal underworld. Ooh. So I don't know if that means he was a part of the mob or what that means, but he knew the criminal underworld and knew how they actually talked. So he was responsible for writing some of the dialogue and sprucing that up. If you do decide to go and watch this movie, you are not watching the movie that the majority of people would have actually seen. And the reason being is that after it premiered at Cannes, uh, about eight minutes of the movie was cut out from the middle section. This was a Dino De Laurentiis decision and not a Fellini decision. He actually went against Fellini and just cut out eight minutes of the movie and then distributed it out to like North America and other places. So, specifically, what was cut out, Dave, I don't know if you remember a certain scene that happens basically at the midpoint of this film, where there's a lot of wandering and a bunch of cave dwellers that kind of show up. (laughs) That entire thing was cut out. It was put back in after this film was restored in 1998, and they actually put that scene back into the movie. I thought you were going to surprise me with something that was so egregious that we didn't get to watch it, but it it was just the the cave dwellers. Spoiler alert, uh, there are cave dwellers in this film. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. (laughs) That is basically up until the point that we need to get up to. Although I do have a little postscript that we need to get to before we end this episode, Dave, about some of the stuff, um, about the, uh, uh, I guess Mm. the, not history, but the longevity of this movie and its influence on other uh, Mm. productions. We are now in spoiler talk. So... Let's get into it, Dave. Like, what works, what doesn't work for you in this movie? Let's mix it up. We, well, I, I guess it would a better way, because we talked about how, like, the middle portion is weird. Right. What about that seems so adrift here for you? Uh, well, I'm just trying to remember the the full sequence, but, you know, uh, let's let's pull this out in a bit of a Coles notes. We, we start off with this woman being pushed into a river yes. for her purse. I mean, yes. right away, you're like, is that a thing? <laughs> Well, because she, well, yeah, I know. I I guess I also didn't quite realize, even though I should have, again, because I watched the white sheik that she was a prostitute. Yeah. So it makes sense. Like he's pushing her in the river, stealing her money that she she doesn't. She's not like a person. Right. Right. Because she's not going to put that into a bank and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, steals it, runs away. I think the other thing that confused me just in the initial is the English translation when, uh, the people are trying to save her. I thought saving her was hilarious, holding her upside yeah. down. I mean, that might have been par for the course of that time, but uh, apparently water, a drowning resuscitation has yeah. evolved quite a bit since I would 19- think so. I, I, don't know if that, I don't know if that would actually work. I do know this, and this could be an old wives' tale too. I don't know. But having grown up on a farm and birthing calves, when they get bored, you have to do that so it, the fluid drains out of their lungs properly. Mm. <laughs> so you hold them up by the back legs and like drain them out. You know, it'd be interesting is uh, maybe that's why he put it in there. Hmm. Metaphorically, maybe. right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Now Being that we're talking about from it. the river again. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we may be giving him too much credit, but that Pro- now possibly. that you brought it up, but that's possible because it is a very weird thing. 
uh, the English translation, the subtitles that we got to watch when they're asking like, where is she? And then the person says, uh, the kid says, uh, she's got a house. She's, it almost sounded like she's a person of means. But I think mm. what they meant was that she's, you know, a streetwalker that lives in the house right. down the street. Uh, so that set, set it off a little bit. Yeah. But then she gets frustrated, uh, runs into Rome. Yeah. And she's uh, like crazy from the beginning. Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. She's like kicking and screaming. Yeah. yeah. Um, decides to go on this night. And it, really the big thing is that she meets this famous actor. Yeah. I, so all I loved uh, her friend. I thought she was yeah, very... Wanda. Uh, Wanda. She's very... Uh, can I just say, I, and yeah, I don't so know if this great. is like, I don't know how mean this is going to come across, but you don't really even see that kind of body type in most American films or, or European films for that matter now. So it, it was just interesting to see what I am going to call a bit of like a taller, huskier woman being yeah. like a kind of a main character in the movie. Yeah, it's, it, it's refreshing. I, and I, we, uh, you know what I will do is maybe look up this whole is a Khrushchev like the ballerina body type shit that mm. that came out of that one Russian asshole's uh, brain. But if this predates that or the influence of this idea of a uh, of a perfect body form in performance art, even like all of the all of the women of the night were just fascinating little uh, structures that they they were all unique. Uniquely dressed and had unique characteristics. Which yeah, it's like super. Like everyone was like an individual. Yeah, uh, in that kind of group for sure, hundred percent. Um. So yeah, as we go in, she's you realize she's a prostitute because she's hang- suddenly she's hanging out at the street corner with a bunch of dudes. I loved how the pimps are like they just look like teenagers in a car. Like it's hard to even understand what their role is until they're mm-hmm. talking in the car and he's offering her a position in his little troop. And then she meets this actor and that whole scene you want to talk about surreal is fantastic. Cause, uh, um, he lives in a completely different existence. Kyle does too. And the house that he's in, this is when I started questioning the timeline, that house would be considered balling today. There's oh, yeah. fucking walls, and I didn't even know they did glass architecture the way that they did. I mean, that's a house that, by modern standards, would be considered architecturally like elite. It doesn't have that old timey fifties feel where, like, if you watch a Rat Pack movie and they're balling in the in the hotel mm-hmm. suite. I mean, that's archaic. That stuff doesn't look that high end anymore. I mean, the no, rooms but it's are like big, a really fancy beautiful, house. Beautiful. I, house. I actually love the joke after. I'm like, how do you get out of here? Like, she yeah. just doesn't know. It's yeah. so big that she doesn't know how to actually get out. It's so self aware, right? In that moment. Yeah. And even like the little, I mean, it's it's such great commentary, the nuance of him being in love with this other woman and, and how that, you know, all, all of that uh, is so well written. And then when that breaks up, I like you. I, I'm engaged. I'm like, where do where do we go from here? Like, what's going to happen? Is this a love story? Is this, you know, are we just following her life? And then, yeah, I think this movie has in its mind to make a comment on every social stratum in Italy at the time. Mm. You go from yeah. the super rich, the ultra poor cave dwellers, the super religious uh, prostitutes, children, you know, like small town stuff, big town, like the, even the hierarchy of big town prostitutes and street corner prostitutes. And it's just, it's trying to do so much and, and so getting wider and wider. But I think that's where maybe it, it just tries a little too hard, I think. Um, yeah, like that, that is kind of where I drop off. Like we get to this bit of a crescendo and then it, it she like leaves the actor's house and I'm like, I'm ready for the next adventure. Let's go yeah. and see what's going on next. And then it's like, okay, we're going to spend a bunch of time wandering around looking at these cave dwellers. And then it's like, we're going to do this really extended sequence of like going to like this, uh, not really even church service. I don't even really know what it was that they're doing in there, but like they do the parade, they go up in the temple, they kiss the thing, they walk back out. And- they want they want the miracle from Mary. Right. Yeah, so yeah. if you, uh, I mean, this is not just Catholicism, but any spiritual occult, really, mentality mm. that if you uh, provide the true fervor, you'll be rewarded by the impossible. And mm. you see that her character trying, I mean, the whole thread of it is she's trying to shirk her actual station in life. She's both yeah, attached she to, to being up. a prostitute, but she wants to be a quote unquote normal person. And in that breaking point, because she's so uh, flippant about it and she, she's so agitated and that's the point of the film where you're like, oh, she she's genuine. She she just wants to be pure and and lighthearted and. Uh, well, yeah, and there definitely is like this um, commentary on like the Madonna, right? Like this pure, beautiful, virginal 
uh, idealized version of a woman. Uh, I did actually kind of enjoy that kind of imagery compared when she goes to see the hypnotist. The hypnotist at one point literally has like devil horns yeah, that, that he's wearing. So yeah. it's like we're being corrupted or tempted maybe by the devil in this case. And we're, uh, we're uh, appeasing or trying to appeal to the Madonna. And those imagery is like this butting itself up against one another, uh, which is what makes, I think, her eventual plight so sad. I'll have I'll ask you this and maybe I'm just a dummy. And you cut onto this way quicker. At what point did you, were you like, oh, he's going to steal her money, too? Well, I will say cynically, when he was waiting for outside, I thought he was going to uh, take advantage of her, so to speak. And then when he uh, kept dating her, you get, I, I fell into this thought that, you know, there's this thing where her wish is going to be granted, but there's a little voice in my head thinking, that is, there's no way that this is going to be a movie like a Disney princess where she was just waiting for the right guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she sold the house and they, uh, they went off, I was like, this guy's fucking taking her money. Like it, it's just, she's yeah, got this was, wad of cash and I'm like, there's no way this is going to end well. I will say this. I was on the hook right up until he's like, leave the luggage here. I'm like, Oh God, no, this. <laughs> and, then, and then they went to like literally the middle of the woods. I'm like, Oh, she's getting murdered. She's totally going to get murdered by this, this guy. Yeah. No one just goes out to the middle of the woods for no reason sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so that whole sequence is so tragic to me. He's like, Oh man, like she was, she was doing kind of okay. That, uh, that guy, uh, he pulls a great sort of Frito too. I, he, his performance kind of tips you off when they're having, because he does this, I mean, it's the devil horn thing. He, he plays this part that she needs for this fantasy. And then as soon as they're sitting at the table, his mannerisms change. And all of a sudden he's wearing sunglasses and he smokes his cigarette a little different. He's not responding. And then when he tells her, oh, your luggage would be fine here. You're like, um, yeah, he's going to fucking chop her up and leave yeah. her in the woods. <laughs> um, well, actually what, what he does so well, and this is, a semi-spoiler for a current film that you can watch called Promising Young Woman. Now, I will say that the online discussion of Promising Young Woman, I feel has been a bit divisive. It's a coming, it's apparently a movie now that it's like, you're either going to love it or hate it. I happen to be on the love it side. But there is a character in that film which has to convincingly portray a nice guy, like a good nice guy, and then it has to get corrupted into a bad nice guy later on. And I think it's done so well in that movie because it's like, oh, I didn't even see that this was being set up this way. And I feel kind of the same way in this one, which is I think you're right. Like initially when like in the back alley where she comes out of the theme, like, oh, what's going on? Right. It's like, but he's nice. Like he does, he's not trying to force himself on her. He's just like this really sweet gentleman. And then at a certain point, like, nope, this isn't this is not <laughs> too good to be true. This is too good to be true. You know, it's interesting. So at the at the end of that, the main movie's crux, climax, whatever, and and I think it's played, that part is why it's haunting to me. It's played so well, the sort of uh, gray area of morality. So you have this man who clearly has plotted not only to steal a prostitute's money after learning that she's this idealist and this child, you know, through the hypnotist, but he's going to murder her. He's going to push her off a fucking cliff. And then uh, when he sees that she actually is this child, he can't do it. Just for the record, I'd have no problem pushing a kid off of a cliff. And I thought that was going to be the end of the movie. And then you get mm. into this weird dream sequence, uh, kind of like you're bringing up that this is clearly intentional, um, where she starts walking back home and these children come out in a fucking midnight parade. Uh, <laughs> and then as they pan around her, she's got the, the tears of the clown, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought uh, that's why when I finished the movie, I was thinking, okay, you know, this is a a tragic clown. She plays this naive thing, human, I suppose, uh, to to keep a line through the plot. But then I have to ask, like, did I enjoy it? Did I learn anything from it? You know, is this something I'd Mm -hmm. ever watch again? I I don't know. Is this one of the top 25 movies ever made? So I got stuck there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Let's break that down here. Um, maybe in a moment i guess what i was struck by and again i'm not like the most learned scholar of like film history but what i was so struck by is like well this is like 1957 they probably were filming this in like 1956 even that features a prostitute as the main character and i think that we get this idea in our heads like especially black and white film 
there's like oh like you're just not going to have that plot line because i think we're just so inundated with like hollywood films uh so i so i called it up and i was like just films that feature a prostitute i have no idea if, like this is like a think about what this is doing intense, to your like, google algorithm like, man i mean you, well, should, yeah. you gotta respect your algorithm but like in the 40s you have stuff that's like from france from japan there's some stuff in china and stuff here um, we have this f- film, and the first American film Pretty Woman. doesn't really show up until 1960, which is called Never on a Sunday. Uh, and then even then, I don't think there's another one here that I can see that's Pretty American. Woman. Pretty Woman. For like, yeah, another like 10 years or so. So, like, I mean, there, it is something bold to be like, no, like, this is our main character. And, and they famously, whether you believe it or not, I guess, but famously, Roger Ebert mentioned on how films are like these windows into um, a character's perspective and that you don't necessarily have to go into a film and believe what the character believes but it allows you the empathy to understand where they're coming from and the plights that they face uh like so machine or movies are empathy machines i think that's his famous quote and i feel that that is so true here where prostitutes to this day are often looked down upon shunned are easily like pushed into the corners where like awful things can happen to them. So that in 1957, this guy with his wife in the main role is like, no, let's feature someone whose life isn't all that great in post-war Italy. And let's just see what her story is. I think there's, there's is something to that. That's a bit powerful. Yeah. I think the, uh, the key insight there is post-war. And I think particularly these two great wars, but I think any war situation you know, it, it tests uh, a culture and a, a society's uh, commitment to their own morality. And so something like Italy, where you're on the losing side, never mind uh, how America does on this quote-unquote winning side, we've seen uh, the remnants of that winning culture uh, mm-hmm. this year. It's fucking awful. But um, Italy's decimated. Uh, and so we do have a, I think, I mean, I think about Korea this way. I have this idea of contextualizing post-war Korea as today's Korea, but 50 years ago. But uh, po- uh, just after the Korean War, Korea was a third world country and Italy would have been as well. Uh, there would have been no infrastructure. They would have lost their government. They would have lost everything. In that world, what do you do to eat? In that world, what does an artist see? They don't live in the, in the ivory tower, so to speak, anymore. Uh, and I feel like you brought up um, Japan, Italy, uh, what were the France. other France? I mean, these were I think countries, China too. Yeah, right. These are countries that got their butts whipped, came out of these uh, post-war eras, and they had to do a lot of uh, uh, self-assessment. Existentialist philosophy comes out of this, where you know this group of minds are like, "There's no good and wrong. <laughs> There's no good and bad anymore. Like we've all done shitty things now. Like I've murdered someone. I know you've murdered this person. Slept with this person to survive. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's that's the powerful thing about art is like you said when it can reflect our uh perception of ourselves i don't know how many layers you want to put on that whether it intends to or not movies like this uh definitely bridge empathy and empathetic um things with each other current movies generally miss this mark so good i i would like to put in good movies are empathy machines and the vast majority of the garbage that comes out of hollywood uh, does the opposite it deadens us and makes us into. I don't know. I, I thought that idle hands made me feel empathy for hands that are idle. So I <laughs> think know, that, I, that was a home run. I right haven't there. thought about zombies the same way. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, they were so cute. I, I want to get into like literally the very final shot. Yeah. Like those, those final two minutes where she basically has her purse stolen with like the, you know, 40,000 lira that was like all the money to her name. He is, was originally going to push her literally down the ravine, probably to her death. Cliff. Uh, uh, she's begging for it. Oh, yeah. Shit. And she even tells her like, kill me then. Like, just kill me and get it over with. I, what are you, a man? Then kill me. Um, he does. And he runs away. She collapses in the forest and she picks herself up, walks silently out. There's a band that starts to play and she kind of joins in. And eventually smiles i i kind of want to know like what you make of that like is this like oh like hope for a future day or is this i don't know i i, I wasn't sure how to feel on that closing shot yeah I, I think that's the best way to put it i don't know how to feel you know when 
right now, because you brought up uh, the allegory of the birthing calf, I wonder mm. if the intent is that she actually is dead and these are the sort of angelic uh, procession of her into oh. heaven or hell. Wow, look Look who's going all English majory over here. <laughs> it, at the time, though, I just started thinking, you know, the tears of the clowns thing that uh, she's not heading to a better life, but she, this is just her life. Like, because there is a pattern throughout all of her misadventures. There's this uh, hope that drives her into the next adventure, and then this uh, failure, destruction, and then she always picks herself back up. And she is counterpointed with all the other prostitutes who are just like, what? The, why do you fucking keep doing this other thing? Just commit to it. You know, live the life with us. We're going to this bar. We're going to stay on this corner. Well, I can't even remember the, the framework. And she's clearly different from everyone around her. So it was very confusing. Well, there, there's a bit of a tragedy to that. And maybe I just, I don't know, identify with this way too much because I always try to punch above my station. But there is a bit of a... Um, there's a horrible feeling to have when it's like, I want to aspire to something far greater and you simply just do not have the resources to get there. Whether it's like, I don't have the smarts, the, the actual monetary resources, or it's just like, you know, it is what it is. This is what I am. Uh, this is what I was born into. And maybe my like next generation can have the hope of attaining that, but I will never attain that level. And that can be frustrating for, for that person to be in there. Yeah, I, I definitely felt that. Maybe, and maybe, you know, when you bring up empathy, maybe that's why I feel so confused by this because we're, we're living that with her. And, mm -hmm. and maybe that makes this film even more effective than I want to give it credit for. But Well, well uh, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think more on that is that because we are with her, we do see those flashes of like, oh, you can do like way more than, yeah. you know, again. There's hope. I, I, I gives very, you some hope. I want, well, yeah. a little bit of hope. I, I guess I want to be very clear I don't, I don't want to sound this like, like all sex work is awful. Like that's not really what I'm trying to argue here. But what I am saying is like, it's because of the actress being like classically trained as a clown. Uh, she can dance, she can sing, she can do all this stuff. And we see glimpses of that. So it's like, oh, like you could, if you really wanted to <laughs> try for it, could probably make a bit of a living being either like a busker or a performer of some kind. But that does take a lot of other fortitude to do so. Yeah, I guess for me, I, I didn't really think about other things that she ought to or could be doing. I, I definitely, like even the parts where she's performing, I, I got this feel, you know, they do that sort of a comedic bit where she's the only one that's performing. So uh, like, for example, when she's dancing in that club with the rich dude, the rich guy is like this wooden, you know, he's disinterested, but he's not leaving her alone either. So there's a weird, again, it's such a mm -hmm. weird moment where... She, like you said, she's drawing everyone's attention. Even when she's on stage with the hypnotist, people are shown to be uh, enamored with her. Whether they actually are, if this is her imagination, I don't Right, know. yeah, and yeah. This becomes a philosophy 201 uh, text all of a sudden. <laughs> but, I, but I think in principle, we're agreeing. There's something cruel, there's something cruel about it, isn't there? Like, uh, yeah. in a life, life way, but it's, well, it's a very cruel it's, like, oh, it's just like... It's the cruelty of just everyday life is right. what it really is, right? It's not like, again, we never see anything like overtly like people beating her up or leaving her bloody. It's not violent. Or, yeah. or, or that kind of violence there, which is probably what would happen if this was like a brand new film made today. <laughs> it's, that's probably what it would focus on. Yeah. But it's just like, there probably is that going on just by like comments that she makes. But it really is just like everyday life just wearing you down. And that is kind of the tragedy of what it is for her. Well, side note, I will say, maybe this is just a Fellini tick, but literally every film I've seen, all four of them, there is a scene where a band just kind of coalesces from nowhere <laughs> and there's like a musical sequence that happens oh. of like, like just literally like trumpets and stuff going down a street and people follow along and like becomes like a little parade. And like, was this just a thing that happens in Italy or is this like a Fellini thing that he just likes to put in? Isn't that... <laughs> Isn't that something like you would characterize though as like a, such an Italian thing where people would just <laughs> right. start bursting out into song? I think like in Godfather, right. there are so many moments where, I mean, it's in parties, but suddenly a, a random character would start singing an operatic, uh, yeah. if not an aria, at least some type of a choral line. You know, music uh, in that continent of Europe has a much larger role. I mean, we like to, in North America, talk about music in a pop 
structure, which is awful. Well, is I mean, faster. some of it is. There's, there's some good pop music. Well, I, I guess what I mean cynically is the celebrity pop. Like oh, this idea of like, you know, Beatlemania is insane to me. Mm. That, that sort of stuff where people are screaming and tearing off their hair. Don't knock it until you try it. But if you come from a culture that uh, uh, supposedly invented great music and everybody, even the, poor, even the poorest of the poor can sing at least one opera poorly. That's and a that weird... is why fascism works. <laughs> it, actually, well, I don't know. I feel like fascism's stronger here. Hey yo. <laughs> We're done here. All right. So the machine has asked us to wrap up here. Um, I guess it is time to ask those kind of two questions that we normally ask, which is, does this hold up, Dave? And do you think it is still culturally relevant? I think the themes and the philosophical questions are relevant. I mean, I think they're questions about humanity, right? And 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 living. But I didn't enjoy watching this movie, to be honest with you. I think oh, okay. what I enjoyed was the thought process underneath and the discussion like this with you about it. But as great as the performances can be, I, I, I found myself, I don't know, I'm kind of stuck on it. I don't know if anybody needs to or would want to watch this movie other than nerds that are trying to check boxes off of a, a list. Well, yeah. I mean, I think what it comes down to something that we have mentioned here, I think it was last week or the week before, where... The, this movie in particular and it's like yeah the people who are going to watch this movie in particular are going to probably be the cinephiles the people who go to film school or yes i, I just want to check it off the list because it apparently is one of the 20 best movies ever made and i just want to see what i think about this film on the other hand as far as like the actual storyline and what it's trying to present that is relevant i still think it is relevant and then this is the hole that I fell down because while I was even watching this movie, I was like, there's something, why is this firing something in my brain? Why does this seem familiar? I've never seen this movie before. And that is when I discovered that this film is the basis for the Broadway musical Sweet Charity. Nothing. Sorry. You will know Sweet Charity by its most famous song that came from it, which is um, Big Spender. You know, the minute she walked through the room, bump, bump. No, uh, I need more. Keep going. Hey, big spender. Dun, 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 dun. If you, that, like, that's a Sorry, semi you have to keep singing. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> that is like the most famous song that came from, from that. Uh, choreographed and directed on Broadway by Bob Fosse. They made a film version in 69, which I actually tracked down and watched here this week. Oh and God. let me tell you, that has now become one of my favorite movies of all time. Mostly just because of the cameo of Sammy Davis Jr. singing this song called Big Daddy, where a bunch of hippies are just writhing on the floor and he is just like belting it out. And I was like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> it is so wild and weird and 60s and it's so good. Uh, but it's, you can't buy it, it's nowhere to stream. It's almost impossible to find um, unless you have a Blu ray player and want to spend $50 and then you can get Sweet Charity. Sweet Charity, I mean... You just, you just had, incriminated yourself. Uh, there are questions charity. asked now. <laughs> sweet Charity, I mean, like, its last revival was, like, last year. So, like, this is still something that gets performed on Broadway in London. There's been multiple versions of this show that gets put on, like, every so often. So it survives through, I think, that prism, which, again, talking about, like, people who are going to actually watch the movie, Broadway fans... Again, or like another like like layer down. So I still think it's relevant. I still think the story is able to like uh, transfer through the years. Um, I will say, by the way, the Sweet Charity slightly changes certain plot points. The biggest being she's not a prostitute in the Broadway show. I was she ask. is she is um, essentially an escort, um, a dance escort. So you come into the dance hall and she dances with you. I was like, for it's money. the same thing. It's the same thing. An yeah, escort and no, a prostitute. There's but no, no sex involved. Yeah, yeah there's no sex involved. Yeah. As far as as far as you know. As far as I know. Um, but the choreography is amazing. Cheetah Rivera is in this movie. Like, I mean, come on. What more do you want, Dave? Wrong podcast. Cheetah Rivera is just, in this movie. Just cut this and put it on your other one. You're, you're losing it. You're losing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like literally me and five other people would care about Cheetah Rivera showing up in a movie. I should say that I also don't care about any of this. Oh man. Um even well, the machine is shaking its head. And that's <laughs> no difficult. recognition yep. from the machine whatsoever. 
Well, that's that's interesting because now that you say that you did enjoy the movie, I'm actually very curious. Like, what would you rate this movie out of five? Yeah, I don't know. It's like a a three for me. I think um, I might even go lower. I you know, and this is so unfair. But midway through it, all I kept thinking was Kurosawa's shooting around this era, and, and his black and white is on the it's on the fucking money. That guy's no, a I, I, and I agree. Like if you compare like Fellini at this time with um, Kurosawa at this time, like I don't think there's any comparison. No. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that cinematography is is not necessarily being a director per se. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I just, I couldn't, I don't know. I just, yeah, I feel muddled about it. So I'll stay with a three just to respect the philosophical uh, push, but, uh, you know. To, yeah, to uh, to honor the uh, Italian neorealism right. uh, of the piece. Because um, it was very realistic, but like in a, in a neo way. Do you know what I mean? Like it was. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. Like the Matrix. So, like I said, kind of at the beginning, because I took the time to watch other Fellini films, I think that is coloring a little bit about my rating. Because I think had I gone in with that context not available, I would probably be around what you would give it. Um, I, however, just based on his other films and how I enjoyed them, I am giving this movie a four. Ooh, I Discord. did enjoy it. I think I think the middle gets muddled a bit too much for me, but the beginning and end is so strong that I think it elevates it up to that uh, to that rating. Can which I means put, that we I'll put a footnote that what's her name? Mm-hmm. Um, the main actress. She's a five. She's incredible. Yeah, in this, she's she's so, great. Yeah. So that means that that averages out to three point five. I'm telling you, Pete, uh, Dave, like the the Fellini files are just going to come oh, at we'll us. We'll be getting like, death threats. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, that is going to put it at the bottom of our list here for the top 250 films because um, it averages a 3.5 unless you want to make a play that you think it should go above Magnolia. Oh, wait. Because Magnolia uh, is rated, it averages to four, but you know, sometimes you rate movies differently depending on eras uh, and stuff like that. So do you think it should go no, above Magnolia or no. stay where it's at? Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I am going to offend people, but I don't think it's better than Magnolia. I think. Mm. That's just me. Uh, you know, fuck you, history. You know, like, who gives, a, who gives a shit about the past? I don't want to know where I come from. Give me now, right? Yeah. Kyle? Like, entertain me Lit- now. Honestly, any movie that came out more than five <laughs> years ago is a garbage. It's garbageio. <laughs> Do you remember that classic uh, Avengers? Oh, <laughs> yeah. man. Ooh, like the Susant that you put on to be like a... Pre-3D? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, entering our list... At the number eight position, because we've only talked about eight films from the top 250, is Knights of Kiberia. You know, uh, yeah, who respects history? I mean, this is like talking about Mickey Mouse. When did Mickey Mouse come out? Like 1957? Oh, no, it was before that. I think Steamboat Willie. Wait a second. Disney. Dave, I I have been an idiot. Remember the last rune? Remember the last rune that uh, was given to us? What's a rune? Oh, Damn it. This deep and rich fiction that you keep forgetting about. The last rune was Disney World oh. with like a little copyright symbol after it. We don't want to get sued. Well, we don't want to get sued, but I know that Disney World became a thing. It was, a, you know, open for the first time in 1971. Oh. Do you think maybe 1971 is the film year that this machine has been trying to tell us? Well, let's try it out. Yeah, I mean, you could put it. In. Just keep in mind, if you if you fuck this up, we're dead. We're trapped here. Yeah, that's the end here. of this. All right, so one, Pushing the nine, I don't seven. Know. I already regret this. One. Oh, ah! access granted. It's good. It's what, good. What good. is it? It's happy face. So, not only are we into the system, the 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 spaceship now is like all starting up here. Oh, I'm vibrating. You can hear, yeah, vibrating. You can hear the engine roar. Ah, uh, vibrations. Okay. Punch it, Davy. Um, we're gonna we're gonna start going at light speed here, and oh, just in time, the machine is printing out our first movie that we're gonna be watching from the year 1971. Oh, it's a chit dot matrix. What does it read, Dave? Next week, we're gonna be talking about. Shaft. Shut your mouth. 
Just for the record, I'd have no problem pushing a kid off of a cliff. I just had this thought, and you would have to rebuild the dialogue, but Ginny and Garofalo would have been much better as a lead yeah, in this who type of actually movie. shows up in this movie for like well, that's why 30 I brought, seconds, I, like, yeah. Yeah, that's why I brought it up, because I was like, as you were talking about Kevin Smith and his dialogue, I was just thinking, Ginny and Garofalo's in it, and she, uh, would be, yeah, she's she the would most sarcastic person on the earth. Very yeah, excellent to be put into this yeah. role, actually, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you get... I mean, I say this actually, I think this a lot about every film Ben Affleck is in, but it's so obvious he's an asshole in real life. I mean, he's like, he's such hey, a pig. You're kidding when he's down. He just broke up with his girlfriend right now. I don't even know. I don't okay. follow. All, all I know is uh, he can't hide it. I remember watching Mallrats on VHS and thinking, my God. This guy's such well, that's a prick. Like the classic like David Fincher thing. The reason why he cast him in Gone Girl was because he looks like an asshole. He's <laughs> like, I need you. To, I need someone who looks like an asshole in real life, and people oh, will buy an him. Asshole. So yeah, which you know, incidentally, I didn't think that he would have been a bad Batman mm -hmm. uh, if Zack Snyder and DC didn't fuck up that entire world. But uh, because you know, Bruce Wayne is an asshole, and I think you could play that a little irrelevant. Um, Matt Damon's really good in this, but uh, the characters are so weird, right? I mean, um, well, this there's thing like is trying to be smart. Too but... many characters is what I think yeah. the actual issue is. Is like, yeah, really, what we need is yes, great. Have the Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, you know, they're inciting action. They if they walk through the front of the church, the bad things are going to happen. Okay, that's our little MacGuffin. That's what's going to cause the end of the world. But then, really. I would have stuck with just the Chris Rock character. It's like, all you need is Chris Rock. He, he He's their partner up together and they're trying to get to where they're going to go. And you can still have, I guess, the Jay and Silent Bob is like sidekicks here and there. But then we have to add on the Selma Hayek and then Jason Isaacs is there. And we have, or Jason Isaacs, uh, Jason Lee is is there. Um, and all these other like elements. I'm like, ah, like I know that they're your friends and you just wanted to give them some work. But like, I really think this is detracting from what the main thrust of this film is 